HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're jumping into a world filled with fizz, iridescence, and deliciousness. We're talking about bubbles. It came from the air gas truck. Yeah, no, I never thought about it before that. And I think it's emerged as a bulbous tea shops, a site of Asian American youth uh, identity building. We're called the invisible industry because these products you don't really see, but they're around us in every way, um, every day. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today we have two guests, Carl Schatz and Margaret Hathaway. Carl and Margaret live on 10 Apple Farm in Maine with their three daughters. Margaret is a writer. Carl is a photographer. Once they decided to make Maine their home and raise their family on a goat farm, they went all in for Maine. They were the two pillars behind the award-winning Maine Bicentennial Community Cookbook published last summer. The cookbook was a smash. Over 200 recipes for Mainers of all stripes, chock full of people, family, and all things Maine. I'll let Margaret Hathaway tell the story of how a community cookbook published in the heart of the pandemic came to be the heart center of the state. I'm not a Mainer, and I never will be, but uh, I was lucky enough to marry in. My husband, Carl, is fourth generation Maine on his dad's side. His mom moved here when she was six. So she, like me, is still from away. The last 72 years don't quite cut it. When Carl and I started dating about 20 years ago, we were living in New York City, and he would bring me up here to visit his family in Maine and to to stay at their beautiful lake house on uh, Lake Cobbesee Conti, which is near Augusta, where he grew up. And I just fell in love. I fell in love with the pine trees and the loons and the 
steamed clams and the whole the whole nine yards. I loved it. We got married here in Maine on a, a little goat and cow farm near the ocean. And we decided to to live here and to raise our family here. We've been in Maine for our whole marriage. We have three daughters now who were born here. And we are raising them on a little farm. We have goats and chickens and a small apple orchard and a big garden and lots of woods. It's very bucolic. It's the way life should be, as they say here in Maine. And it's great. Carl has always identified as a Mainer, but now raising the kids here, it's even more so. So about, oh, the beginning of 2019, as Maine was approaching its bicentennial of statehood, Carl was working on various projects um, related to the bicentennial. And he came across a sesquicentennial cookbook that had come out in 1970, which is coincidentally the year he was born. And it was a kind of a treasure of Maine foods. It was a lot of what you would expect, you know, fish with butter and breadcrumbs and or even cracker crumbs and oysters with mayonnaise and all kinds of foods that are what you expect, blueberry pies, you name it. Carl and I had collaborated on cookbooks before. We had just finished one called the New Portland Maine Chef's Table, and it was about to come out in 2019. I've worked in food and food writings for most of my career in various ways, and Carl uh, is a photographer, and he shot the photos for, for this cookbook. And as the Bicentennial approached, and we discovered this this previous cookbook, Carl thought, well, why not make a bicentennial cookbook? And he became a little obsessed with the idea. And it was a compressed time frame, which kind of gave us pause. But then we thought, okay, maybe we can pull this off. We've done this before. We just did it. We are really happy with the book that we just finished up. So so we decided to, to make a bicentennial cookbook. And we came up with a vision for what we wanted this book to be. And it would be diverse. It would include all kinds of people who lived in Maine, people who, like Carl, have had families that have been here for a long time, but also, like Carl, had families who immigrated from other places and and really kept their food traditions. We would do a, a book that was inclusive, was diverse, would include all 16 counties. The understanding that Maine was celebrating 200 years of statehood, but that there had been people here before Maine was a state, and we wanted to include the Wabanaki. We had this vision of a, a book that would be would be expansive, would would have two hundred recipes. That was kind of gimmicky, but that was something we we decided on. We would crowdsource the recipes, and that a portion of the proceeds would go to fight hunger in Maine. We wanted this to be a celebration of the bicentennial that that felt in tune with where the state was, both as a celebratory piece of work, but also acknowledging that Maine has high rates of food insecurity. We wanted to to have this do some good. So we started working on it and the project started taking shape. And we told our friend Don Lindgren, who's an antiquarian bookseller and has an incredibly large collection of old cookbooks, but also community cookbooks. He collects community cookbooks and has probably the, the largest community cookbook collection of books produced in Maine, probably in the world. 
And so we were talking to Don and Don said, well, this is a community cookbook. And we said, well, of course it is. It's, you know, this is the community. And he said, no, there are three things that define a community cookbook. And this ticks all the boxes. The community cookbook is made from a defined community. The recipes come from the community and a portion of the proceeds from a community cookbook always goes back into that community to do some good works. So we said, oh, yeah, I guess it is. And as we learned more about community cookbooks from Don, we roped him into being part of this. And um, just as a community cookbook has three pillars, this book began to have three pillars. Don came along for the ride and also started to shape the book to include historical cookbooks and references to historical community cookbooks in Maine. So this vision took shape. And by about Thanksgiving, we had set up a website that had a portal so people could uh, submit their recipes. And it had a little form where people could submit images or stories to. Our efforts to spread the word about this project had borne fruit. It started as a trickle at first, but then People started talking to their relatives, probably over Thanksgiving dinner, as they were sharing some of these recipes that they ultimately sent to us. And we started getting just a flood of recipes. Tons of stories and recipes came in. At the beginning, we got what we would expect, molasses cookies and venison mincemeat. We got multiple recipes for that. And the sorts of things people were putting on their holiday tables, because this was Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then as we continued, the weeks wore on, recipes started to become more diverse in flavor and started to feel as though they more accurately depicted the, the population of the state. We started to get recipes from African immigrants. We started to get recipes from Greek and Italian Americans whose families, like Carl's, had come in the end of the 1800s, but had really maintained a lot of their food traditions. We got two different recipes for Brazilian lobster stew and Colombian empanadas and a Hushwe, which is a, a rice and chicken dish from the Lebanese community that settled in Waterville in um, the early 1900s. The, the recipes just came in beyond our wildest expectations. We had hoped that we would get maybe 100 recipes and then we would reach out to maybe some famous Mainers and try to fill in gaps where we could with uh, Dawn's collection. But when we were we're getting close to closing the submission portal. We had received more than 400 recipes. And it was thrilling. It was so exciting to sift through these. And and one thing that we had not expected, though we probably should have, was that in addition to actual recipes and lists of ingredients and instructions, we were also receiving family artifacts. We we were receiving scans of place cards from the 1930s and scans of recipe cards from as far back as the 1800s and stories that went along with them. A little note from someone that said, well, we found this when we were cleaning out the barn and it was a, a box of my grandmother's recipes. We received two memoirs that people had written about growing up in a rustic county in the 1900s. And we received just countless family photographs and stories. People would would start writing a story. And then I think because they knew that on the other end, the, the audience was interested, they would really flesh it out with these details that made their families come alive to us. 
And we were invited into these intimate moments of grief, of deprivation, where where food became the solace and the connective glue that held their families together. We were let in on family jokes. These people who were total strangers to us began to feel like our community, like in creating this community cookbook, we had inadvertently created this microcosm of Maine's community. It was beautiful. It was so exhilarating. Every morning when we went downstairs and turned on our computers to see the little icon would pop up for the submission portal had new recipes in it and to to see what had come in and to read these these beautiful heartfelt stories it was an honor and a privilege to be included in these people's lives in this way and we we started to feel like these people were our friends. We started to feel protective of them. And as we began pruning out the recipes, we did everything we could to add more and to keep everyone in. It was very hard. It ended up being incredibly challenging to cut anyone. We we actually produced a separate set of recipe cards just so we could squeeze another 16 recipes in. So March 15th, 2020 was supposed to be the day that we completely stopped taking new recipes and started marketing and beginning the publicity for the book. We had it pretty much shaped by then. Things were kind of trickling in, but March 15th was the day where we would be at the official main bicentennial celebrations in Augusta, and we would start talking publicly about the book and starting to hype it a bit in time for the summer season when the big celebrations would really happen. But as everyone knows, March 15th of 2020 uh, was a very different day than most of us had planned for. That was the beginning of the lockdown here in Maine, and that was when everything really shut down. And we continued to work on the book. Like everyone, we had to pivot. That was the big word that everyone was using in March of 2020. We pivoted. But we kept working and we thought, okay, we we need to honor these people who have shared their stories with us. Foolishly, we thought, well, this pandemic can't last that long. But we just wanted for our own sense of completion of the project to stay on track to meet our publication date of June 15th. So we just kept working. And the community that had shared their recipes with us became even more important to us during those first months of the pandemic. When we were alone at home with our kids, we still were connected to these other people. Our dining room table was minimized to just the people who live in this house, which is very rare. And yet we felt like we still had a seat at the table with other people. And we had all these families who were connected to the project that we checked in with and we felt like they were they were connected to us at a time when we all felt such disconnection that was a godsend it was a lifeline this project kept us going and we could tell that it gave another outlet for people who had shared their recipes 
it gave them another outlet for staying um, connected to to their families and memories because they would have to call their sister to make sure that the recipe was attributed correctly or would be thinking about their mom or their kids and and going through family photos to find something you know horizontal when they had sent us a vertical of a similar scenario as we got into the nitty-gritty of the book layout so in the end, we did finish the book in time for it to come out in June, and it was one of the few bicentennial celebrations that actually appeared in the summer of 2020. And because it was one of the only things that came out, organizations like libraries and Maine Public, which is our public radio and television station, started to do online cook-alongs using the book as the, the base in the summer they did one that we participated in, and then others, we would get emails from people saying that their library was doing a Zoom cook-along, or their community organization was cooking along, and they were sharing their recipes and the photos and notes on what they had made. And so this book began to build community outside of itself. The book had a life of its own. And that was gratifying. And, and for us in this year, where so much has been so challenging, to know that food connection started in our harebrained scheme <laughs> has felt great. It's been something we're very proud of. As of now, nine months after publication of the book, we've been able to distribute almost $15,000 to organizations fighting hunger throughout the state. And the need there is because of the pandemic, even greater than than it was when we started the project. So I'm still not a Mainer, obviously. But this project affirmed to me how much the state of Maine is my community. And Maine is my home. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. It's a great story of how a cookbook can build community. After the break, we'll hear from Carl Schatz, photographer, husband and father, and someone with lifelong Maine cred. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to LarderMeatCo.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. (laughs) 
And now we're back with Carl Schatz. He'll tell us about how growing up Jewish in Maine inspired the idea of a community cookbook. You'll love the stories about his great-grandmother, Cookie Nana, the kosher caterer. For the past 18 years, Margaret and I have been on this incredible food journey together that started when we were living in New York City and had this fantasy that we wanted to be goat farmers and make goat cheese, but really knew nothing about goats or cheese making. And so we decided to do our research and we took this incredible trip all over the country visiting goat farmers and cheese makers. And that became the subject for Margaret's first book, the food and travel memoir uh, called The Year of the Goat. We've continued to collaborate on our farm where we live now, Ten Apple Farm, which we've been growing and expanding for the past 16 years. We've raised and fed three daughters here on the farm. And we've collaborated on three cookbooks together. But before I met Margaret, I wasn't really that interested in food. A lot of this is Margaret's influence, to be honest. But before we met, I ate macaroni and cheese from a box or uh, SpaghettiOs from a can, which still makes Margaret shudder today. Sometimes I would take a hot dog and cut it up and put it in the SpaghettiOs, which somehow seemed a little bit more like cooking than just buying the can that already had the hot dogs in it. There were probably two primary influences on me in terms of my food journey. The first was growing up uh, in Maine, and the second was growing up Jewish in Maine. And growing up Jewish in Maine is no easy feat, especially in Augusta, where I grew up, where in my high school of 1,200 kids, there were four Jews, and one of them was my sister. And we weren't particularly observant growing up, although we celebrated all the holidays. We had Shabbat dinners, which, of course, involved food, and kept kosher for Passover. I can remember taking matzah and peanut butter and jelly to school, but generally we didn't keep kosher. And I don't think we ate pork, but like a lot of other Maine Jews, we definitely ate lobster. When my parents were growing up in Portland, it was a little bit different. They grew up in much more traditional homes. Portland was a little bit more traditional Jewish community. My father grew up in a kosher home. And in fact, my great-grandmother, my dad's grandmother, Sadie Schatz, who our youngest daughter, Sadie, is named after, was one of two kosher caterers in Portland in the 1940s and 50s. And before that, she ran a kosher boarding house in Old Orchard Beach. Her name was Sadie, and my dad called her Nana. We always called her Cookie Nana. The great-grandkids called her Cookie Nana because whenever we went to her house, there were always cookies. She was retired from catering at that point, but she was still cooking, and there were always cookies for us. And in addition to catering, Cookie Nana also taught cooking classes at the Jewish Home for the Aged, where she was very involved uh, there. And she contributed recipes to a number of Jewish community cookbooks produced in Portland over the years. I think having an ancestor who was a kosher caterer 
gave me a certain feeling of connection, both to my Jewish heritage and to food heritage. I guess you could say it gave me both a food cred and Jew cred at the same time, something to kind of hang my hat on in both those areas. And so when we were putting together the main bicentennial community cookbook, I knew I wanted to honor that heritage and her legacy by including one of her recipes in the cookbook. So when we were looking for her recipes, I reached out to my aunt, who's sort of the keeper of these family things, and she sent us both my great-grandmother's catering notebook, which had handwritten recipes and almost indecipherable as recipes. I mean, it was uh, some ingredients and no instructions. It was really just notes to herself, but incredible to see in her handwriting. But she also sent us the Temple Bethel uh, Portland Community Cookbook, which came out, I think, in the late 60s that had a number of her recipes in it. And so we're flipping through the book and looking for her recipes and noticing some handwritten notes in the margins, which is very common to see in community cookbooks, often, you know, adjustments to recipes. But on a number of pages, what we saw next to recipes that had been contributed by other women was that my great-grandmother had written next to those recipes and underlined two or three times, mine. We just love that. We included that story in, in the cookbook. This is something that I really love about these community cookbooks, not my you know grandmother's grouchiness about other people stealing her recipes, but the fact that these community cookbooks were a way that recipes were really shared around the community and that people would then take these recipes and make them their own. I sort of imagine what happened was that my great-grandmother had contributed a number of recipes to the earlier community cookbook from the Jewish home. And those cookbooks probably made their way into just about every Jewish home in Portland. And people cooked those recipes and they may have changed them a little bit, but they made them and again and again, and they became their recipes. And then when it came time later, in the 60s and Temple Bethel was putting together their community cookbook, people submitted these recipes as, as their recipes. The story that we didn't include in the Bicentennial cookbook is actually one of my favorite stories about my great-grandmother that my dad tells, which is that when she retired from catering, he went to her and asked if he could have some of the big pots that she used when she was catering. Probably she used them for, you know, chicken soup or something like that. And she asked him, you know, why he, he wanted the pots. I think she was a little suspicious and he kind of hemmed and hawed and said, you know, I just, you know, I'm starting a new house and we need pots for cooking. And she got a little bit more suspicious and probably, you know, narrowed her eyes a little bit and said, are you going to use these pots for cooking lobster? And my dad couldn't lie to his grandmother. So he said, Nana, I can't lie. Yes, I'll probably cook lobster in these pots. And, and she paused for a second and said, I want you to cook me a lobster. And it's a little bit surprising to me that someone who had spent her whole life keeping kosher, living by these dietary laws, and not only for herself and her family, but for other people and other people's families that, you know, she was as a kosher caterer, she was keeping kosher for other people as well. There's part of it, it's just surprising that she would be willing to throw that away after so many years to try this food that, you know, she didn't know whether it was going to be good or bad. But on the other hand, it's sort of not surprising that 
for someone who spent her entire life both keeping kosher, but also living in Maine. She immigrated from Russia when she was 13, so she really spent her whole life here. And someone who loved food, to love to cook and love to eat, the lunches that they served, that she served at her house, were apparently somewhat legendary, both in terms of quality and quantity of food. And so for someone who, you know, loved food that much and spent her life in Maine, you know, adjacent to people eating this signature Maine food when she was keeping her boarding house, her kosher boarding house in Old Orchard Beach. People were flocking to Old Orchard Beach to eat lobsters. So in a way, it's not surprising that as a cook and a lover of food that she would be curious and and that that curiosity might win out over tradition. I recently asked my dad if he ever kept his promise to his grandmother and, and, and took her up on that request that he cook a lobster for her. He said that he did. Shortly after my parents were married, they were living in Lewiston and they invited my great-grandmother. And uh, so Sadie and, and Sam was her husband, Sadie and Sam. We called him Grampy. So they invited Cookie Nana and Grampy to their apartment and they made them dinner and they made lobster. They served it out of the shell. They didn't make her crack it open and clean it herself. So they just brought her a plate with lobster. My great-grandfather, he declined the lobster. He said he would just have a piece of fish, which just doesn't get any more uh, Jewish than that. But so they served her the lobster and and apparently she she really liked it. She She ate it all and she enjoyed it. And after dinner, she pulled my father aside, I think away from Grampy so he couldn't hear. And she said, I think I'd like to try fried clams next. Thanks so much, Carl and Margaret and the whole Maine Bicentennial Cookbook team. Soon, they'll be debuting a podcast series of their own, Cooking is Community, all about the world of community cookbooks. We'll let you know when it's out. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 